Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm Kevin Estella, Director of Training. I'm recording this here in North Carolina at our awesome Firebase, where we got all sorts of really, really good training coming up. Um, guys, just a heads up, if you're interested in training, we have land navigation coming up October 21st and December 2nd. We also have a really badass guest instructor series uh, coming up. And one of the guys who's coming is actually a good friend of ours, someone that you've heard probably on the podcast, Aaron Snyder. Uh, he is going to be out here in November. So please, please check those out. But what I want to do is I just want to recognize our sponsors that make this podcast possible. And the sponsors for this podcast are Sig Sauer and Vertex. So let's talk about Sig Sauer. Guys, I am a Sig Sauer junkie. I shoot a lot of different firearms. Uh, I've collected a lot over the years and I've trained up at the Sig Sauer Academy. Uh, if you were to ask me right now, what Sig pistols do I have within arm's reach? I'm going to tell you it's my Sig 365 XL, uh, which actually started as just like the standard 365. A lot of people don't know that you can buy the additional grip modules and longer slides and all sorts of accessories for it. So with a few different parts, you can swap back and forth between a full size, well, I should say a longer slide subcompact pistol with a 12 round capacity, 15 round capacity, and then they make some mags that are even larger than that. Uh, you can go from that to a compact pistol, which you can easily carry inside of a pocket with a good holster that protects that trigger guard and nothing else in your pocket. So guys, I'm a huge fan of my uh, SIG 365 and one that I'm looking forward to getting back into a pistol that I regret selling was my SIG 220, but I've got a hookup for one. Uh, I'm going to be buying one again very, very soon. And that is going to be my dedicated suppressor host for my SIG SRD 45. It is such a fantastic suppressor. SIG has uh, some great folks over in their suppressor division, John Hollister being one of them. And 45 is the caliber that was meant to be suppressed. Uh, a lot of people talk about 10 mil. Well, 45 is like 11.5 mil and it's already subsonic. So it makes a great suppressor uh, round. And the SIG 220 classic line with the SRD 45 is going to be badass. So guys, please check out SIG. They're a great, great friend of ours and uh, one of our sponsors. The other sponsor for this podcast is Vertex. Vertex has been making clothes for quite some time. Uh, Vertex is actually making our brand new recce shirt, which it's a really, really smart design. And Vertex clothing is what I am the most familiar with. I have some other Vertex products, like some of their, their Tactigami and you know some of their mag pouches and things like that. But I've got a pair of Vertex pants that I cannot destroy. I've mentioned on previous podcasts that I've had them since December of 2016. And I wore them on the History Channel. I've worn them uh, as a survival instructor. I've beaten the crap out of them and they're still going. So Vertex pants are fantastic. I have some Vertex socks. Um, their clothing line is tough as nails, and I would highly, highly recommend that you guys uh, check them out. Some of our folks that work for Fieldcraft are running Vertex uh, long gun bags that actually hold things like the SIG MCX with the folding uh, stock or the SIG MPX and things like that. But Vertex, they're good folks over there. I've met them. They've been at the trade shows, and uh, they've got some pretty cool uh, very forward-thinking designs, so please check them out. But guys, this podcast is going to be awesome, so one more time, so we can just get right to it. Please check out SIG, that's uh, www.sigsour.com. 
please check out their training academy, Six Hour Academy. And please check out Vertex. That's V-E-R-T-X dot com. And you'll see some of the stuff that, uh, you know, we've been working on them with, including that recce shirt. Okay, it's time to get this podcast. Here we go. Hey guys, are you thinking about getting a new truck cover? You should be considering Diamondback Automotive Accessories. Got Diamondback covers is the truck covers that Phil Craft Survival uses in all of our builds and open truck bed setups. Their 270, 180 can safely carry a dynamic load of 400 pounds, and the HD can safely carry a dynamic load of 1,600 pounds. In fact, I just got done talking to my marketing guy. It looks like we're going to build a Ford Ranger Raptor with a new Diamondback cover setup. You guys can go to diamondbackcovers.com. And on top of it all, if you're thinking about security, please don't put a tarp on the back of your truck bed. Use something that has the security and allows you to lock up all your belongings with the load bearing capacity on top. That's what makes Diamondback covers the best. It's made in the US, ultra durable, theft protected, weather protected, and world-class customer service. Check them out at diamondbackcovers.com. And so our well water is, is pretty clean, but what I do is I reverse osmosis it, then I put it through an alkaline filter, Ooh. and then I add minerals to it. Every morning, it's the first thing I do before I have my espresso or anything else. I oh, we gotta talk minerals about in my water. I gotta yeah. talk, we gotta talk about those habits. Yeah. Um, how do you pronounce your last name? Zahab? Zahab. There's Zahab. no wrong way to say it, yeah. And where does that come from? It's uh, Lebanese, but my mom is American Zahab. from Ohio. She's Czech. Really? Yes, I'm a mix. <laughs> your mom's from Ohio. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So you um, you live in Canada. Yeah. And you travel all over the world doing do. adventure expeditions, expeditions and yeah. adventure racing, right? No, I don't adventure race anymore. It's been years. I do expeditions oh. of my own. Yeah. I guide expeditions for clients. Yeah. And then I have a foundation where I take kids on expeditions around the world 100% free of charge. And I fund it. Wow. by doing my expeditions. So it's a weird business model. I love then that I though. travel a lot and I speak. I mean, I, you know, I do keynotes all over the world for big companies and stuff, yeah. you know. Yeah, I saw facilitation that. Your, your uh, social media is really cool, especially because you sh you show a lot of the, the suffering yeah. and the challenges that you face. Well, in. challenges and also what I try to do is I try to distill it down to what every single person's capable of. People yeah. don't tap into their potential, Yeah. right? People get comfortable I think with mediocrity, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I think it's like the same way that I found out I had blood cancer. I just thought I was getting older. Yeah. You know what I mean? I just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my performance was going down. Yeah. I couldn't recover. I couldn't do sequential long workouts. I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm just getting old. Yeah. And it was blood cancer. It. Yeah. Yeah. I have a rare form of lymphoma. But now so I'm right now, you're, you're. I'm like a rock star. Back really? solid, 100%. My hematocrit's back up. Everything's amazing. There's no cure. It'll come back in three, four years. Yeah. But the chemo knocked the shit out of it. And you got to so keep up body, with the chemo? Is that what it what Well, the, I will do chemo in three to five years from now. Wow. So I did chemo for six months. Yeah. But I said, fuck that. I'm not going to stop during chemo. Yeah. And every month I set a goal. I had six months of chemo. Every month I set a goal. After the two days of chemo, I said, you know what? For the next 25 days, I'm going to get strong and I'm going to go do something. Yeah. And I would go and I would either be guiding an expedition or I did an Arctic expedition up on Baffin Island or I did, you know, I just did different. I took one of my daughters to Death Valley, ran 50K with my 12 year old throughout the week in Death Valley around the dunes and everything, scouting out a route I wanted to do out there, which is one of the most extraordinary places on earth. Yeah. And so I just kept going. That's my philosophy is like, you got to live now and you got to live everything you've got full throttle. 
right yeah, now. Yeah, you yeah. You know what I mean? You're on the clock. Everybody's time Everybody's is... on the clock. And you got to have an eye to the future. Yeah. And an appreciation for the past. But now is what, to, that's what matters. Have what you matters. always had that philosophy? How, how have you think become, so? I yeah. think it's enhanced though. Yeah. You know, it's enhanced from doing expeditions and doing hard things. When yeah. you do hard things, you learn things, right? And the bigger that, or, or the broader, I would say that my life has become with the myriad of different things that I'm doing, there's an expectation I have of myself that I'll be able to do all of these things and continue doing all of these things. Well, it's a lot of shit. Yeah. I'm doing a lot of things, yeah. right? So in order to be able to continue doing all of those things, you have to build a resilience, mm. right? Because if you don't have that ability to be resilient, and you know that better than anyone, mm. if you don't have that resilience, then you're not going to make it. That's so interesting. I, I So I, when I talk about resilience, the number one thing I recommend is exposure to difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, and you have done some of the most difficult things in the world for a human being to do. Can you highlight some of those experiences for the, for the audience that people are listening to this? Like, and and what was the objective of those specific instances of you putting yourself in those difficult situations? Oh, I mean, you know, that's a that's a huge question. I would say, look, I've ran or used my feet to cross twenty thousand kilometers of deserts, mm. Arctic regions, Siberia, Antarctica, you know, all over the world. Sometimes unsupported on winter expeditions crossing deserts at the hottest time of year, sometimes solo, sometimes with a teammate. So that's like, what is that, 13, 14,000 miles mm. spent on my feet, covering a lot of ground on this planet. Every expedition has its own unique characteristics, like it would for you on a mission mm -hmm. previously, you know, you had a mission, the details of that mission every single time are different and what's gonna make it successful or make the outcome successful mm. is completely different each time. Crossing Death Valley in the middle of summer is approximately 250 kilometers. Yet those 250 kilometers, not that long, is unbelievably more difficult than some of these other projects I've done that are thousands of miles long, mm. right? But it's the circumstances by which I'm in, in Death Valley. Hottest mm. place on earth, middle of summer, completely off-road, navigation can be tricky. Mm. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. Whereas crossing the Namib Desert in, um, running from the South African border to the Angolan border in Southwestern Africa, if you will, through that mm -hmm. desert, 1,850 kilometers, middle of summer with my teammate. We practiced and trained for a year, prepared physically for that, mm. knew that our bodies could process in extreme heat, like upwards of 115 to 125 degrees Fahrenheit, that we could process the fluids that we needed to take on. And if we could just not screw up the navigation, not get eaten by a lion and keep <laughs> heading north, we could make it, mm -hmm. right? Two completely different circumstances, two completely different potential outcomes based on the environment that mm -hmm. we were in, mm -hmm. right? Both deserts, right? Wow. So it's super interesting how that works. Now, flip side that with an Arctic expedition. So can you imagine being in a place where winter is permanent darkness? Mm -hmm. Uh, temperatures are minus 60 with the wind. And I'm not kidding when I say this, the wind chills can get minus 90 to minus 100. Oof. You freeze instantly. And I've done projects in the Arctic that, multiple projects in the Arctic that I thought, there's no way I'm gonna be able to finish this one. There's just no way. Like it's just, there's no way to deal with this environment, let alone in darkness. I have my firearms with me, but I can't see the polar bear. The polar bears are the stealthiest hunters on the planet. If they wanna get you, they're getting you. You know, wow. like there's no way you're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to to get that firearm and get, you know, fire a slug into that bear to save your life yeah. if you needed to. Yeah. We don't want to do that, but I mean, you know, it could happen, right? Yeah. Shit happens. 
So that's a completely different set of hazards, you know? And then if I could take it up another layer, if I'm not boring you with this long no, diatribe here. And that was unsupported, by the way? Unsupported. So yeah. every Arctic expedition I do, Antarctica to the South Pole, uh, broke the world record to the South Pole unsupported for a team, uh, 33 days and change. Um, Siberia, uh, Lake Baikal, Siberia, middle of winter, 14 days unsupported, 13 days unsupported. Kamchatka Peninsula, 20 days in the wilderness, but had to pull the plug at the end of that one. Canadian Arctic, numerous winter Arctic expeditions, all of them unsupported. So what that means mm -hmm. is pulling a sled with all my gear, everything I need, all the food, the fuel to survive for that time that we're in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. That also means creating content, um, all of those things that one wouldn't necessarily think of, uh, but it's, you gotta plan for it and you gotta be able to do it when it's minus 60. Well, how do you keep your camera from freezing? How do you, you know, drink in those temperatures? How do you prepare your food? There's all these strategies that are involved in and amongst dealing with extreme wind chills, dipping to the minus 90s, polar bears that you possibly can't see, mm -hmm. you know, and all the rest of it, right? And I've had close calls. I've had a lot of clo close calls, especially on Arctic expeditions. What, what's your most dangerous close call where you felt in fear of your life, where you knew this might not work out well? I was on an expedition in, get my years straight here. I think it was 2016, February, 2016. It was the first part of a three-part expedition that I was doing across the Canadian Arctic. Mm -hmm. Each region of the Canadian Arctic, which is a massively expansive area of the planet. Like, I mean, it's huge, thousands of miles across. And I think it could be, well, it's 3000 kilometers, I believe, from the most Northern point to the most Southern point in the Arctic, mm -hmm. it's, it's huge. In the first part, I was gonna be trekking through a mountain pass, a vast mountain pass in the Eastern Arctic, unsupported. Mm -hmm. Second part, I was gonna ski across Baffin Island, unsupported. Third part, I was gonna ride a fat bike, with like a mountain bike with big tires that mm -hmm. are studded, unsupported on the ice road from Wrigley to Fort Good Hope in the Northwest Territories. One mm -hmm. of the roads that was on ice road truckers, one of the dangerous roads mm -hmm. in the world, I'll get to that. So the first part, trekking through these mountains unsupported. And we got dropped by helicopter through a snowstorm. Uh, my teammate from Italy and I were working together, collaborating on this project. And we had the two of us and our polar bear dog. And the dog uh, is an Inuit dog and it's trained to warn us if polar bears are around. So it's like a lifeline. Pull our sleds off the, the uh, helicopter. We're on this coast, it's coastal mountains. And the pilot's like, come on guys, you gotta, you gotta hustle because the bears will start congregating in that area. So we get all our stuff loaded up. We start heading up this river valley, which eventually narrows. Now, it was an unusual winter in that region of the Arctic. Mm -hmm. They had warming trends that would get down to, or up to, you know, in Celsius, we get up to 32 Fahrenheit, you know, 31 Fahrenheit, wow. zero degrees Celsius, but then it would shoot right down to minus 40. Mm -hmm. And in those warmer periods, get tons of snow and snowstorms, and then it would freeze. So this river system that we're on is kind of sketchy, but it's our only place that we can travel on the land because we're surrounded by cliffs. Mm -hmm. And I had the most experience out of the two of us, so I would scout ahead and we would unrope from one another for safety because this river was not with, uh, low banks it was between a, like being like in the grand canyon like mm -hmm. granite walls in the box canyon at the bottom of the grand canyon mm -hmm. it's like that you know boom and so the water in there that ice is very unstable as it's attached to the rock so it would unclip i'd move ahead because we didn't know how frozen that ice was did that ice freeze in the minus 40 and then get snowed on so it's thick mm -hmm. or was it this thick 
with tons of snow insulating it. Oof. We didn't know. Yeah. So we moved up one section at a time, come back at the sleds, get the dock, move up, come back at the sleds. We're on our last section, a very narrow part, no wider than this room, 15, 20 feet across. And I said to Stefan, I turned to him as far away as the wall is from us. I turned to him, I said, I'll scout this last piece. And then I think the valley's gonna open up. I could see the topography flattening out over the horizon. And so I took one step ahead, I was checking with my poles and boom, I went into this river. So now we've been climbing steadily. It was minus 30 out. I go into this river and the current is immediately pulling me under. We're wearing snowshoes with crampons on them with spikes on the bottom of them. And whenever I travel on ice in the Arctic, I always have my boots undone, my snowshoes undone for if something like this should ever happen, I'll let my boots and my snowshoes go. I don't care if my feet freeze, if I can live, right? Yeah, yeah. I go in that water, dude. I, I've never had a situation, 40 expeditions I've done, never had a situation where instantly my brain went somewhere else. Like it was not even fear, it was fight or flight. He was no longer, Stefano, my teammate, right there. I thought he was way down the river gorge and I'm yelling, I went in the water, I went in the water, you know? And he's like, dude, I'm right here, I'm right here. And I'm like, it's not it's not comprehending. And, and so he's trying, he's a big guy, he's a really big guy and he's, he's on his stomach and he's trying to get towards me but the closer he gets to me, the more the ice is caving in. So I'm on overflow. So I've broken through overflow and that's why it's so unstable. And I'm yelling, get back, get back. And as I'm in this water, I'm looking at the shape of the hole, it's shaped like a triangle in front of me. My arms are perched up, it's blackness here, blackness here and the current of the water. So there's a running river underneath the oh, ice. Oh yeah, dude, like I mean, raging, oh, like class five water, wow. right? And it's pulling me under like this with my snowshoes as a sail. Right, like pulling me, and I'm friggin' pulling my feet against. So I'm like, come on, I can't get my boots off. And all I'm thinking as I'm in there is, I've got two minutes to live before you're completely hypothermic, and you just slip underneath, and they find you. So whoever looks for you years later, kilometers down, miles down the river, right underneath the ice. And all I'm thinking is, I'm never gonna see my kids again. Oh. That's all that came to my head. I didn't give a shit about anything else. Mm. I'm never gonna see my kids again. And all I could think of was to pull my, as hard as I could, and I was pulling, and I pulled so hard, I injured my hand, it's still to this sore, to this day it's sore. I pulled my right leg so hard that my leg flung out of the hole with the snowshoe on, dunk, and it caught the other side of the hole that was sort of angular, and I pushed up against it with all my might. I got my back out like this with my backpack on. Stefano reached down to the loop on the back of my backpack because he's like stretched out as far as he can, and he's, like big guys, I said, it's very strong and he pulled on me and I rolled out. And as I rolled out, I was laughing to myself because I, I couldn't friggin' believe that I survived this shit. You know, like I'm, I covered myself in snow to get all the moisture off and I had an emergency down suit that a company Canada Goose made for me. It's good to minus 70, custom made. If this should ever happen, I brought it with me on a dozen expeditions. Now I'm actually getting into it. Get that thing on, but all I had was my boots. I didn't bring spare boots to on an expedition to the Arctic. They're filled with water. Dude, I put them right back on my feet. But I was on cloud nine because I thought, probably gonna lose my feet. I'm gonna frostbite yeah, my feet. But you're alive. But I'm alive and I see my kids again. Oh my God. You know? And we hiked back down that whole river system, came back up. I had, to, I had oh, so long story. We had to find a way up this cliff to scramble up this cliff and we we're roping up our sleds and everything. And 
came back around and then two days out by hiking through a snowstorm to get to a point where our photographer, amazing guy named John Golden, came, was coming from the other end photographing caribou, a caribou herd. It's separate expedition, but the same expedition, but he was with hunters. And they were coming across following this herd and I called him on our sat phone. I said, dude, you gotta come get me. Like I am done. I was hypothermic. I couldn't go to the bathroom anymore. I don't know if you've ever had hypothermia, mm -hmm. but it just completely messes you up, right, for days. But I was the happiest I'd ever been in my entire life. My entire world in that moment went from like this to like this. And I reprioritized, everything reshuffled in my mind automatically. And laying in that tent at night, second night in, we knew we were getting picked up by snow machine the next day. Mm -hmm. Stefano said, what are you thinking about the rest of this expedition? I said, dude, you know what? I'll tell you exactly what I would tell any one of our youth ambassadors that goes on our youth expeditions. These kids get injured, I tell them, you gotta reinvent yourselves. You, you can't stop, you have to find it in you to continue in the way that you need to, but you don't give up, right? Mm -hmm. you, just, you just don't give up. And so I said, I'm not gonna give up on this. But at the same time, there was a clarity in my life and my priorities, which I thought I had before, were reconfigured. And number one was my family. That was my number one priority. Mm -hmm. It was very clear to me, I always, Believed it was, but this was different, you know? And then extraneous out, of, out from there were the relationships that I had with friends that had the same values as I do, the same reciprocation of true friendship and all the other extraneous bullshit in my life just kind of went away, you know? Like people that email you and they only want to talk to you when they need something or, you know, there's not, a, it's not a two way, right? It wasn't a judgy thing. It's just that I let all that go. Mm. You know what I'm saying? I let it all go. So amazing. It was the worst thing that ever happened, but one of the best things that ever happened to me. And I went on, I completed, I skied across Baffin Island with frostbitten feet. I didn't lose my toes, but my toes were all black. I skied across Baffin Island successfully and I rode that damn fat bike all the way from Ridley to Fort Good Hope. So I finished the trip. Wow. It's so incredible, man. I, I'm so impressed. I, I've always been impressed by guys like you who do these long endurance events that it's not about, um, toughing it out. It's about the agility. It's about the endurance. And there's something special about that. My favorite quote was uh, Ernest Shackleton. He said, through endurance, we conquer. Mm -hmm. And um, and you spent time in that exact space in Antarctica where he did that expedition. And I kind of, I, I, we met through Ben Light, mm -hmm. who's a mutual friend of ours. And I was talking to him about that expedition that Ernest Shackleton did with his, his mates. And, you know, they, they left the day that World War I started mm -hmm. and it went really bad, you know, 400 plus days on the iceberg and they survived. But it's a really good story of survival. You know, Phil Krause Survival, my company, it's kind of modeled after that whole idea of mm -hmm. like endurance is a long event. Life is a long event. Mm -hmm. You need to do your best to play the long game and not play the short game. Um, I'm, I'm actually interested a lot in very specific behaviors and patterns and routines of yours. Mm -hmm. And I know that's a thing, like mm -hmm. people, it's like the Tim Ferriss thing, the tools yeah. of Titans, mm -hmm. you know? But I'm, I'm really interested for you because of these different things that you've gone through where you're in extreme heat, extreme cold, very different environments. How, how do you train up for something that's extreme heat versus extreme cold? Is it about immersion? Do you have different tactics for the environment? And do you, like you said, you trained up for a year. Yeah. I imagine 
you understand the planning and preparation phase of all this mm -hmm. because you've played the game so long. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that and some of your routines that you implement in your life that are beneficial to, okay. to other people. Oh, okay. so I have, a, I have a theory after yeah. all these years of doing this stuff that everything that we do in life, whether it's an expedition, endurance, uh, survival, bushcraft, life, work, it's all series of stresses. It's stressors that we put That's on right. the body. Yeah. So it's how do we adapt, not only adapt to stress, but thrive in stressful situations. Mm. Well, we thrive when we have the capacity to process mm. in the moment. Mm. What that means to me, I don't look at a cold expedition as, okay, well, it's a cold weather expedition, so I have to prepare to be cold all the time. Sure, it helps a little bit, but what I look at is, I need my body to be able to process calories when it's extremely cold out. A diet that's 90% fat of calories when I'm in the Arctic, I change that radically when I go to the heat, the hot places. But 90% of my calories in the Arctic are fat because it's lighter, nine calories per gram. I'm pulling less stuff behind mm. me in my sled, right? Mm. So if my body can process those calories and extract more out of that fat, more energy out of that fat, more efficiently, then my stress levels are reduced, right? Mm. So how do I train my body also to process the fluids? We still can get dehydrated in the extreme cold. People underestimate the role of minerals and hydration mm. in everything that we do on a day-to-day -day basis and with our ability to deal with stress. Well, how do I train my body? in the cold to want to not just clam up and constrict, but to actually drink and take those fluids on, get what I need, both the macro, the micronutrients, and also my hydration. Well, I have a barrel sauna at home in my backyard. I crank that thing up to 190 Fahrenheit, and I sit in it for 20 minutes at a time every day during the week, and I have my hydration mix. Hydration mix may change based on what type of expedition I'm doing, hot versus cold, but I use the sauna whether I'm going on a cold expedition or a hot expedition, because when I'm in the sauna, I'm in a period of extreme stress. And so I have found for me, and there's a million different ways, there's cold immersion, there's different ways for people to adapt mm -hmm. to stressors, but I have found the sauna incredible in making that adaptive process happen and reducing stress level. Also, the types of foods that I eat and I choose to use on expeditions and in endurance-based activities, um, have to mimic in some way the construct of the diet that I have when I'm at home. Mm. So I see people all the time, I'm gonna get a lot of shit for this, but I'm gonna say it anyhow. I see a lot of people, um, and I've trained a lot of clients over the years and worked with a lot of people over the years, ultra runners over the years, and I'm coaching a couple of folks right now that are friends of mine. And I try to move them more towards a natural food diet because no matter what, when you're in a stressful situation, like an endurance event of some kind or running an ultra marathon or whatever, people are drinking gobs of sugar when their bodies are at their most stressed mm. that they ever are. That mm. physical stress of running 100 miles is so intensely difficult, 50 miles, is so intensely difficult. There's stress also involved. You probably didn't sleep the night before. You're concerned about everything else that's going on. You're under physical stress. And now you're feeding your body a bunch of sugar and expecting it to perform and process all that sugar and not get sick. It's like being at work and saying, well, I'm totally stressed right now. Where's the donuts? Break open the box of Krispy Kremes <laughs> and let's get after it, right? So 
So for me, and I know I'm always giving you long answers here, but for me, being able to process the foods or like the foods that you'll use on your adventures, they have to mimic how you live your life on a daily basis. And also, if you can adapt to stressors and be good at adapting to stress, then you're gonna be better adapted to take on whatever event it is that you're doing. Hey everyone, Vigitz, how are you? This is Nate, and I'm gonna take a quick minute and talk about the sponsor of today's podcast. Quick question for you. If you call someone who speaks three languages trilingual and someone who speaks two languages bilingual, what do you call someone who speaks one language? American. Just kidding, but not really, because it's around 22% of Americans who speak a language other than English at home. But this fall, you can learn a new language and be the exception, not the rule, with Babbel. Babbel is conversation-based learning built with science-backed cognitive tools like spaced repetition and interactive lessons created by real language teachers and voiced by real native speakers. I've used so many different language tools throughout the years, all the way back to when I was a teenager, Googling common phrases, printing them out without pronunciation guides. That was super fun. <laughs> Using CDs and different things. Rosetta Stone and the military. Military would uh, you know, give us pronunciation guides along with our little smart books as we would travel from place to place. A little bit more helpful, but not really. I can say throughout the years, one of my favorite tools that I've come across is by far Babbel. Quick 10-minute lessons help me fit language learning into my day so I can stay consistent. You can customize how intense or simple you want your learning plan to be based to suit your interests. But most importantly, I enjoy learning the language skills along with the context, traditions, and culture of the language that I'm trying to learn. That's the only thing that makes me feel like I'm going to understand the language is understanding the traditions that it's grounded in. Developed by over 150 expert linguists, Babbel gives you unlimited access to hundreds of award-winning lessons designed for all learners based on level and time commitment. You can start speaking a new language in just three weeks. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners to get you started right now. You can get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash fieldcraft. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash fieldcraft spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash fieldcraft. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thanks so much for your time. Now back to our conversation. Yeah, I always found that interesting that uh, in, when I went through special operations training, you know, survival training or ranger school, I, I noticed the guys who were tied or tethered to synthetic uh, supplementation always were the, the, the first to fall. You know, the, the, the guys who were jacked and they had the protein and they needed to get the supplement, guys like me who, who weren't like that, who just ate a normal uh, diet, um, I was adapted for that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a piece of fruit for me was like a glycogen gel, yes. you know, versus a guy who's used to getting the glycogen gel. And so uh, there's there's something very profound and, and beneficial to that. You had talked to me about water. Mm -hmm. and the way that you look at water. And I you know, I have a company called Wolf 21 and I have this ruck up thing. I just took one before this and it has Aquaman S in it. And it also has uh, Cordyceps and B-complex. And you treat your water, and I've heard this done before. The debate I heard about it was, you know, you can't always get that water 
everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. But obviously, if you're training up, if you're preparing, if you're trying to optimize your health, it's something that could benefit you. Talk to me yeah. about the benefits of that. 70% of our bodies are water. Mm. I mean, it stands to reason that we should get some good quality water into mm. our body. So I'm lucky I live in Quebec in a small mm. town. I have a well in my backyard. The water coming out of the ground is about as good as it gets, mm. you know? Um, but when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do before I have my coffee, I have a giant glass of water to rehydrate my body and I put liquid minerals into my water. Trace minerals, bit of sodium as well, bit of potassium. No sugar, trace minerals and the sodium and the potassium because the water that you get, so people that are drinking city water, for example, mm. a lot of those minerals have been removed. Mm. You know, it's heavily fluorinated. Um, you've got to give your body what it needs to start out. I mean, this, uh, you know, bottled water, it's purified water. A lot of the distilled water, people drink a lot of mm. times distilled water. Well, distilled water, again, a lot of There's trouble in this for sure. There's nothing, There's nothing in, in it. it. <laughs> no, you need those minerals, right? Yeah. Like when you're in operations uh, and when you're in special operations and you're in the desert, you're drinking a lot of water. You mm. need salt, you mm. know? And so in order to adapt to any situation, to stress as well, our bodies operate with a certain level of minerals. Mm. And if you're depleting those minerals constantly with an unhealthy diet, let's say, you know, where our vegetables, as a plain fact, our vegetables do not have the same level of minerals that mm. they used to have. Soils yeah. are depleted. So I have a juice machine at home too, I juice you know, in order to get that extra vitamins and minerals as well into my diet. But I add the trace minerals into my water in the morning, first thing to make sure that I'm topping up because water is so critically important mm. to our body's functioning. A lot of people go through life chronically dehydrated, you mm. know, and it's easy for that to happen. A lot of people drink soft drinks, you know, uh, fancy coffees and all this stuff you're not replenishing with good old H2O, mm. mineralized. Is that a supplementation? Is that a specific brand or product that you use? Yeah, that I you use recommend? different ones. I use different ones. Yeah. I mean, I don't really have one that I, there's I think one called BioLite and there's like, yeah. you know, there's a bunch of different ones out there and they're all relatively the same, but I change it up, mm -hmm. you know, so that my body doesn't get completely used to and adapt to exactly one thing. That's the other thing, like with any supplements that I'm taking or vitamins, I'll cycle those mm. so that my body's not always Dependent on Dependent, that. right? Yeah. And also adapting, because the body's an amazing adapting machine. And that's why, for example, I can run 7,500 kilometers, 4,500 miles across the Sahara Desert for 111 days, mm. running 40 miles a day, every single day. Well, why? Because the body adapts to it. And after a while, even my metabolic rate drops and says, well, you don't need to burn 10,000 calories anymore. It's all this guy does. <laughs> let's just let's drop that needle down to 2000 calories a day and he's running 40 miles a day right your body adapts wow. can always adapt so changing things up and keeping things fresh are critical that's insane man it's it's really incredible and i, I you know i i use element as one of my uh, supplements and i remember in the military we had oral rehydration salts mm -hmm. you know ors packets they called it but everybody nobody knew how it worked yeah. but we just knew it made us feel better yeah. but the 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 answer back in the day in the military was drink more water like you have pain in your knee drink water you're tired drink water you're hungry drink water um but it wasn't the water it was the supplementation of minerals that were hydrating us yes. and that's so important i, I think it's a really a lot of interesting that. fact that you bring up because if people have injuries um and they notice that in their longer runs, they consistently get achy in one part of their body or another. If they are staying 
successfully hydrated throughout those longer training sessions or events, they'll come out the other end and recover with less aches and pains in those Achilles areas of their mm. bodies that always seem to be the first to go mm. because your muscles are more hydrated. That connective tissue is more hydrated. I've used the element as well before. It's mm -hmm. really good stuff in some of my Death Valley trips. Give you an idea on how it goes. I, I actually helped design a formula as well. It's just available, I think now in the US as well. It's called Exact with an X, Exact, mm. made by Exact Nutrition. Very similar to Element. Super high sodium, potassium, but no sugar, very low sugar. Mm. That's the idea. Um, Arctic Expedition, my body will adapt to processing less fluid. So in the 13 days it took to cross Lake Baikal, Siberia in the middle of winter, my teammate and I, Kevin and I, were drinking approximately this much water in the morning and then making a thermos of hot tea. And that would take us the whole day. We did 50 kilometers a day, 30 miles a day, pulling a 100 pound sled on the ice. And then we would hydrate like crazy at night, but our bodies adapted to that. At first we were peeing like bright yellow. I wouldn't recommend this to any of your listeners, but we adapted. Contrast that with the most fluids I've ever drank. in a period. So I can go that distance on this, right? Now, contrast that with Death Valley. On some of the, I've gone north to south, full length of Death Valley National Park, middle of August with limited resupplies. West to east last year, over the, the two mountain ranges, Amargosa and Panamints. Widest point, middle of July, extremely hot. Eight to 10 liters wow. every 20 kilometers. Imagine wow. processing that much fluid. But my body, sauna, supplementation, treating my body, preparing one year, goal in mind, I know where I'm going, teach my body how to process. I'm in Death Valley, it's 120 billion degrees, right? The wind is in my face and I'm able to load up my pack every 20 kilometers, down two or three liters there and carry five or six with me and process through it, not get bloated, process through all that sodium, all that potassium. And what does my body do when I'm taking all that on? Muscle functions continue because of all the minerals my body cools as it's designed to do in the extreme heat because I'm able to take that fluid on like a radiator. You know, I'm just pouring that mm. water out of my, my every pore, I'm sweating, but it's evaporating so quick because it's Death Valley in the middle mm. of summer, but it's having a cooling effect. So you see what I'm saying? Like I, and then I'm adapting to the ability to drink that much. If I tried to do that at home, one of my training runs, I do 20, 20 mile training runs in the mountains in Quebec. I don't bring anything with me. I don't mm. drink anything. But when training time comes and it's time to get ready to go to Death Valley in the middle of summer, I'm like, okay, sauna, run, process, train, be ready on the day, you know, as you as ready as you can be. You're the first elite athlete I've actually ever heard or talk uh, talk about um, conditioning for process. Like that. that's very, I never thought, thought about that, but all the issues I've had in the 50 mile that I did, uh, even rucking in the military 20 plus miles with a, with a heavy load, my, I could tell the issues I had were related to this idea of processing mm -hmm. or practicing processing mm -hmm. or conditioning processing. Right. Like I remember on a 20 plus miler, we got to the point where what I was drinking was literally going into my mouth and I was it was coming out and I had to pee it out. And my body couldn't yes. hold on to it because yes. I didn't have the electrolytes, the mm -hmm. potassium that mm -hmm. was necessary. But if I were to condition myself for that process. you were, If you were sitting yeah. in a sauna, and you had your bottle with it and, and you knew that on that rock you were gonna have X, Y, and Z supplementation, or your, that's your sodium and whatever you were gonna have. You're gonna bring element. You would sit in that sauna 20 minutes a day drinking that element 
And then eventually your body just goes one day in the sauna and you look down and you're like, whoa, it's a huge beads of sweat. Mm. And I'm not actually that hot. And you're drinking and then you bring three bottles in the next time and you're able to process through wow. those three bottles, right? Yeah. And after a while, your body adapts to it and you become a cooling machine. And if you never do that and then you just do it out on the race day, like you do the glycogen gel um, or the, the element, you get bloated. Yes. Your body get, has a, a yes. visceral reaction to it. I've had people say to me, I can't finish a race because I get sick. And I said, well, what are you eating? Well, I had six, seven gels and I had these bars and I had this. And I said, yeah. okay, so when you go to work, are you eating the Krispy Kremes? Are you <laughs> sucking on gels at the desk? No, you're not yeah. doing that on a stressful work day. You're eating salads and whatever else, right? You're mm. doing healthy food. I'm not saying eat a salad in your ultra marathon, but use the gels and the sugar sparingly and instead go to more healthier whole foods, mm. find different ways. There's a million, I mean, you know, I've got my runners using my wife who's an ultra runner. She's done Moab 240. That's how we met Ben actually. Oh wow. It was from my wife's races. And so really cool. her and Ben were sort of like always in the same, coming in around the same time through the resupply. So I got to know him, mm -hmm. just an amazing, amazing dude. And you know, I, with her, I would give her potatoes and I'd mash, I'd have two mixtures, sweet potatoes, and yellow potatoes, the yellow potato mixture in baby food packets, you know? Wow. And uh, and we knew about the baby food packets from when our kids were babies, right? Yeah, the Amazon yeah. ones that you can refill. Yellow potatoes, olive oil, sea salt. Throw that in the baby food packet, seal it up. That's her salty mixture. The sweet mixture is Quebec maple syrup, sweet potatoes, sugar, uh, salt, sorry, a little bit of cinnamon, and some coconut oil. Those sound amazing. Dude, they're amazing. That's yeah. your sweet mixture, that's your salty mixture. Dunk. Got them in your pack, Yeah. four or 500 calories in each pouch. Yeah, slower burn as slower well. Slower burn. It's not like- Tons of carbohydrates, yeah. lots of sodium, lots of potassium, but it's not the only things. We do other foods too that are whole foods that are much more digestible and more instantaneous. And you know, I use similar recipes when I go on my expeditions. When I do the Arctic expeditions, if you're interested in this, I'll tell you. So on the Arctic expedition, my main meal is a miso soup. So why miso? Thousand milligrams of sodium in the soup. So I have, it's all dehydrated. Miso soup, two big blocks of these rice ramen noodles. Mm -hmm. A big, we take coconut oil and we fill a, an ice cube tray and we freeze it. And it comes out, you know, get the dunk. And then before I fly up to the Arctic, I put them all in Ziploc bags and the, it's freezing in the, in the hull of the plane, right? Mm -hmm. So they don't squish or anything. And I put two cubes, big ice cubes that are coconut oil into that soup, crushed cashews into that soup, coconut manna into that soup. Sounds amazing. And collagen and mix that up. You have everything you need and you've got like 1,500, 2,000 calories in that soup. I'd eat that right now. So, yeah, it's so good. <laughs> That's know? amazing. Let's talk about your uh, expeditions because now you're, you said you, you stopped racing and doing it. Now you're focused on clientele and people who wanna, get a taste or actually go all out into these expeditions. What is it that you offer and how is this something, is this something for like everyday people that they could do? They just sign up on a, uh, a website and they say, hey, I wanna do this expedition, I'm interested in this. How does that whole thing work? Okay, so I do three things mm. currently in my life. I no longer race, I haven't raced ultra marathons in mm. years or mountain bikes in years. What I do are three things. I do my expeditions like the South Pole or crossing the Sahara, that's my expeditions. Then I do expeditions for youth through my foundation called uh, Impossible to Possible. It's 501c3 in really the United cool. States. And we take kids 16 to 21 years of age on learning-based expeditions all over the world. We've gone to Tunisia, Rajasthan, the Amazon jungle. Everything is 100% paid for. 
and we are all volunteers. No one gets paid. I don't get paid to do that. That's my passion. So my job going on long expeditions and procuring sponsorship helps to fund the charity. So those two things work together. The third piece is what you're asking me about Capic One. So Capic One is a guiding company where I take folks like you and I that don't have the time to go on a month long expedition like I do or two months on an expedition and they go for one week and they experience something similar to what I would do. Maybe not as extreme an environment at like extreme time of year. Example, I'm taking a group of clients to the Atacama Desert in Chile, which is the driest place on earth. I ran the length of that desert solo, 800 miles in summer 2011. It's actually the hardest thing I've ever done. One of the hardest expeditions I've ever done. Much harder than when I went to the South Pole. It was just brutal. But I went north to south, 800 miles. I'm taking this group of clients west to east. And they're going to go about 200 kilometers mm. over the course of about a week, week and a half. Mm -hmm. And they'll make their way through sand dunes. It looks like Libya, these huge sand mm. dunes. And they'll work their way all the way down to the flowering desert, to the ocean. And every day they'll learn something new. They're going to learn about navigation. They're going to learn how to plan their gear. They're going to learn how to eat right when you're out there in the field. They're going to learn skills, like mm. some basic survival skills for something like this. And so that's the way it is. It's all small groups. Mm. And every expedition is different and they're all graded on a difficulty scale. So I took a group of clients to Siberia a few years ago. I'll be taking a group of clients that are super experienced uh, to the Canadian Arctic and on a winter expedition. But I talk to the people first. They reach out through the website, capic1.com. They reach out through the website. And then from there, we figure out what works best for them. But it's all procured small groups. I love that. I, I, yeah. I love it because... It, you get all the skill sets through experience. Mm -hmm. You know that we we do something called rewilding. We have a couple of versions of our experiences where we do cold hot therapy and all, all the different things, but it's mainly learning through the experience, and that's the most profound way to learn because you're learning in real time. And and the stories, the interpersonal relationships, all those things that are really healthy for humans that we've gotten away from. Totally. You know, when you take yeah. a group of people that come from completely different walks of life and you put them in a tent together in the desert for seven, eight days. It's transformative. It can't help. Every time I've done these trips, my guy, I've had people come out there, they think they know what it's gonna be, mm -hmm. right? They, and they, I can see in their eyes, I already got this figured, I've done this, I've done the Marathon de Sab, I've done all these things, I, no big deal, I can do this. Mm -hmm. And they leave and they say, I don't know how, but this is the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. I right? love that. And it's because oh. they just, they walk away with, so I much more it. knowledge about themselves, mm. but they've made lifelong friends as well. And might I add, it's the same thing with the impossible to possible youth expeditions. These kids, doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter how much money you have, none of it matters. When you get out there, you have to work together as a team to achieve the goal. And our youth expeditions, by the way, we did an amazing one in Utah in 2000 and I wanna say it was 14, and we crossed the Grand Staircase Escalante with the University of Utah. And it was uh, the subject of study was the rise of the dinosaurs. And so as these kids oh, ran so over cool. 200 kilometers across the Grand Staircase, they were at University of Utah dig sites. The, the with dudes, yeah. yeah that with dudes casting dinosaur bones who've had dinosaurs named after them. I mean, mm. crazy stuff, right? Mm. So those kids in Utah, these people in Atacama in November, they'll take the lead on day two. Here's the GPS, here's the maps. You now know what a waypoint is. You know what a route is. You know what a general bearing is. Mm -hmm. Let's clean up your navigation because I'm not leading the way. 
It's not about guiding handholding. It's about guiding, teaching, mentoring, giving you the skills so that you be the leaders. And dude, by the end of the week, mm. it's crazy on both fronts, impossible to possible and Capic One. They walk away so confident that I lose them as clients because they go off and do their own things. <laughs> yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. Um, let's, let's, uh, well, there's two parts of this. One, I'm going to have a second segment of this on our app, which is the Philcraft Survival app, because I, I'm very interested in the survival gear, the first aid equipment, and some of the like everyday carry items mm-hmm. that you carry on expeditions and that you personally carry. But um, I wanted to wrap up with this conversation and talk about the youth component. Yeah. Um, you said the most important and impactful thing for you was realizing in a moment of potential death that your family was the most mm-hmm. important thing to you. Yeah. And that's really cool because we talk about that, we we preach that, the family unit's so very important. Mm-hmm. And getting back to basics and spending less time on your phone and more time with your family is important. And the the youth, impossible to possible, uh, ben Light said your your kids are quite the athletes. Yeah. Uh, they're, <laughs> they they're future Olympians. Yeah. Um, and I believe it. That's really cool. And and what is it about um, what you see in youth? And the I would say probably you could see the disconnection, even Canada, mm-hmm. the disconnection of how we grew up versus mm-hmm. how kids now are growing up. Yeah. And and what does impossible to possible do for them in that sense? Ooh, wow, such a good question. You know, so I'm 55. I'm going to be 55 years old. You can tell by the wrinkles on my face. Yeah, and, you look uh, great. You look great for 55. <laughs> that was great. We grew up in a different time. Mm. If you wanted to, I don't know if you grew up in the country. I grew up in the country in a did, very yeah. small town. Yeah. And the next closest kid to me was 25 acres across a hayfield away. Mm. And if I wanted to go and play with those kids, my brother and I, my younger brother, who got me into all this stuff, actually, if we wanted to go play with the neighbor's kids, my mom on a phone that had a cord attached to it, would have to call across the field to the other farm and see if they could catch the other mom to see if the kids were at home so that we could play. There was no answering machines. There was no text. There was no email. There was nothing. And now in a very short period of time, we have a generation of young people that have not straddled both sides. You and I have existed pre-social media. Analog. And Mm -hmm. yes, and in social media. So we're able to separate ourselves. Mm. Like you have a massive following on social Mm. media and you engage with a ton of people on your social media, but you can step away from it Mm -hmm. and you don't care because it's not your identity, it's your business. And it's how you engage with people, it's a tool for you. Mm -hmm. You have this awesome place too where people can come to. For me, it's kind of the same thing with social media but we have a generation of people that have been born into it. Mm. So their identities, uh, everything they know about themselves comes from that mirror that's their phone that they look into mm. and whatever comes back to them. Mm. So I've seen two things with youth. I've seen youth that are completely disconnected from the real world that's around them and can get sucked into that phone and unrealistic expectations of what they should look like, what they should eat or shouldn't eat what they are supposed to be or not be. Uh, There's a lot of depression that's associated with that. There's less conversations happening at home. There's more, um, you know, incidences of depression, et cetera, Mm -hmm. that's going on with our young people. On the flip side, technology, the ability to connect with a kid a world away, learn about culture, learn about other lives. There's that other end, that other blade, the other side of the blade, 
where I've seen kids come out on youth expeditions and they're 17 years old and the shit they're getting done. I was a disaster at 17, <laughs> a mess. Yeah. These kids are changing the world, Yeah, right? So I see two sides, but I am eternally an optimist. And what I'm seeing is a trend with young people to turn their back a little bit on social media, or at least not be so involved in it. Mm -hmm. And instead a desire to want to go out and travel experience things. I tell young people all the time, number one thing you can do in your life, besides being close to the people in your home, are is to travel. Mm. I mean, travel, get out there, learn about the world with your own eyes, formulate your own opinions. Don't make opinions that other people tell you you need to have. Go and have your own opinions. Mm. Determine what the world is to you, you know? Mm. And get out there and, and, and do that. So that's what we try to do with Impossible to Possible. Well, I see these kids come out there and sometimes you know, there's different kids from different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, okay, this one's gonna learn some, this one's gonna learn about suffering on this expedition a little bit. It's gonna be really good for them because they've been handed absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. The other kids come from really rough beginnings, let's say, and they just wanna do something different with their lives. And they come out of it with something completely different, but very empowering to mm -hmm. themselves that say, I am worth something. I can do something amazing, right? Mm -hmm. So. That's what I think about you. I think I'm very hopeful with young people. I'm meeting more kids that impress me than unimpress me, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know? it, it, it's it's so important what you say because almost as a responsibility as elders, I hate using that word, but it's like it makes sense that as elders in in a lot of civilizations, you give back the wisdom and mentor young people mm -hmm. to not make the same mistakes that have been made. And I, I think that's the hope, the optimism I have for our future is guys like you out there with organizations like yours changing young minds' lives um, through their experiences. And, and I think that's the way you do it. I mean, there's a lot of different ways and different tactics. Most of them don't work, but profoundly, if they experience it, if they feel it, if it's real, then they'll carry that weight with them the rest of their life in a good way, a positive totally. way. Totally. I think to um, ways that are being forgotten basic human abilities to do things are being forgotten mm. and not being taught as often anymore. A case in point, <clears throat> friends of mine in the Canadian Arctic, uh, Inuit, there's a lot of trouble in the schools and some of the communities. Uh, the kids are having a hard time. A lot of kids are dropping out. And there was some um, non-governmental groups that got together and said, hey, wait a sec, we've got to teach the old ways. And they brought the elders to start teaching the kids their ways of doing things on the land and the response, the success of these programs is unbelievable. These kids are rediscovering their roots. They're rediscovering their abilities to get out and survive on the land. There's some of these young people, there's a young man who's going on our next youth expedition. He's from the Canadian Arctic, way, way up in a place called, from a place called Resolute. This kid is amazing. He provides food for his community. So country food in the Arctic is a term used for, you go out and you hunt caribou or you get an R wall or whatever, and you bring that food back to these communities that are small and you share what you've hunted. Mm. So there's a dispersion, like you disperse of the meat and stuff with to everybody in the community. The elders, of course, getting, I believe it's the elders get the, the, the prime choices first and so on and so forth. But he's 20 years old. 
He's working. He has his own guiding business up there in the Arctic. Wow. He's a hunter. Wow. He's very well uh, equipped in the old ways, right? And so you see this, this kid who's so successful and he has strength and power that he's gonna carry through and teach his kids, right? It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, I'll leave you the final word. And also how can people, outside of the links that we'll provide um, below, how can people get a hold of you and see what you're doing in all the things that we talked about? Well, here I was just, you know, chiding uh, the Instagram and social media, but I'm easiest to get on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Like, just reach out to me on Instagram. Um, you know, if they message me, I'll message people back and whatever. You know, you know, you know, the whole Instagram spiel. I have a website as well, just mm -hmm. my name, raiseahab.com. If they're interested in expeditions, capic1.com. How do you spell that? Is it K A P I K one.com, the number awesome. one? Um, and yeah, I would say, you know, we, we didn't dive too much into these expeditions. We've, you know, it, but people read about what I do and they'll go to my social media and they'll see some videos or go to my website and they can really dig into what I do. But I think the most important thing is to try and not take ourselves too seriously mm. and instead keep an open mind and never stop learning in life and never stop believing in what one is capable of doing because people forget you know, there's a lot of bad news all the time. You know, there's a lot of things that aren't going well, but they forget how extraordinary they can be in their own lives, that every single person has that capacity to find that in their lives mm -hmm. and to thrive in their own lives if they choose to do so, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes against all odds. So the things I do and I've been able to achieve, if you told me 20 years ago that I was gonna be doing this, I'd say, dude, you're smoking something really bad mm. because that ain't me. Mm. But lo and behold, one thing led to another and here I am. But it's not something special about me. It's that, that thing that exists in every one of us, that explorer that exists in every single one of us that gives us the capacity to go out and do extraordinary things, amazing things in our lives. I love that. Oh, such a good conversation. This could be like a 15 hour conversation. Let's do it. Ray, I, I appreciate you, man. You, you're, you're also the... Um, awardee of the Meritorious Service Medal in Canada. Yeah. And you're also a fellow at, what is it? The, the uh, Royal Geographic Society. The Royal and Geographic the, Society. And the Canadian Royal Geographic Society. Which the statue of Ernest <laughs> Shackleton is sit, sitting out front of that um, in, in England. That's amazing that you've done all these things. I appreciate all the things that we talked about. I'm looking forward to talking more about the other side of this, we'll talk about resilience and we'll also talk about um, your EDC, your everyday carry and the things that you carry okay. on some of the expeditions, if, if that's okay. I would love to. Awesome. Thank you, Ray. Thank you.